you can be just as rebellious eating one or two pieces of bread as you can be for that loaf. But that fear that somebody's going to take this away from you, or that fear that you're going to have to follow a diet within a couple of days and get rid of it is not going to allow you to eat one or two pieces and enjoy it. Yeah. And so, so it, you don't really have autonomy because you still have that metaphorical parent in your brain. Right. Yes. That you're going to like, so your inner parent is in there telling you, you can't have this. So your inner child is going to rebel. Right. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Annifer. It's great to be here. I'm so happy you're here. And this is going to be our first episode of the newest season where I'll start having professionals um, and guests such as yourself. You have a double threat, though, because you are a dietitian and a therapist or a social worker. So I'd love to have you introduce yourself and tell the listeners who you are and what you do. So I have been a dietitian since 1984. I decided to be a dietitian after years of thinking about my weight and worrying about it and thinking, I don't want to be fat. I don't want to be like my family who's Italian and eats all the time. Um, and I'm going to learn how to eat. And so I went to school and went through the University of Texas's um, coordinated undergraduate program and got my my uh, nutrition degree and, and internship. And I was doing that for 14 years. And my last job I had was working with eating disorders and really loved that and worked with a lot of therapists. And then one day a patient said to me, you know, I started throwing up after I was raped at a party. Do you think it has anything to do with it? And I was like, oh, I'm the dietitian. You don't need to be talking mm -hmm. to me about that. You need to be talking to your therapist. And she had not told anybody that before. And I felt really strongly then that I was asked to go into therapy because um, at the time, I didn't like other people giving nutrition advice that weren't right. dietitians. And I thought, well, I can't be giving therapy advice. Um, so that's what led me to pursue my master's in social work. And then when I finally graduated, I still had a hard time leaving the nutrition aspect of it. But I noticed that my counseling became more and more geared towards people's relationship with food and how they use food and what was that intersect between food and the rest of their life. And later I started uh, working with therapists who did not know eating disorders, who weren't experiencing eating disorders. So I would be their dietitian and they would be, well, they'd be the therapist. And I would explain when they needed to have hospitalization, when they needed, what care they needed, and help them understand where mm -hmm. the food and things that they were struggling with intersected. So it was a really great match. And that I did that for a long time. That was more of my 
my niche was being the dietitian on teams that weren't aware of eating disorders so I could help guide the team. And then in 2010, with a group of other women, I started an intensive outpatient program. Well, we were calling it there like a boutique IOP. That was going on until 2015. And that's when I was asked by ERC to come work for them. And um, and then I became clinical director of Eating Recovery Center in Austin. And it was during that 2010 to 2015, I started moving from a dietitian role into more of a social work management role at ERC um, as clinical director. I was overseeing the dietitian. So I was always supervising the dietitians on how to just see further into what was happening. I mean, still work on what the plan was for mechanical eating or helping them, helping patients who are binge eaters. But, it, but looking at it from a different viewpoint, like getting that therapeutic, social work therapeutics in with the biology, chemistry, you know, that medical yeah. aspect of right. being a dietitian. And so we, that we would sit around and really just discuss like, okay, what could be causing some of these difficulties with why they're eating? What's uh, how's it affecting them? Um, I love, always love to look at the metaphors of food. So what foods are they avoiding? What foods are they overeating on? And what's it telling us about their life and what their fears are? And that's, that's how I've operated to, to use the food as a vehicle to help me find where the anxiety is, where the depression is. Mm-hmm. even find some of the trauma that yeah. patients might have occurred, you know, it might've occurred in their life. So yeah, that they didn't even probably realize until mm-hmm. they started working on their eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I've heard, a I heard a lot of things that I would love to ask more about and emphasize and thank you for mentioning, which is the first thing is that why you were interested in becoming a dietitian in the first place. So you're Italian American, mm-hmm. right? And you have a family who's very centered around food or like a culture that's very centered around mm-hmm. food. And is the culture kind of also fat phobic? Like are they, is there a lot of shame around being fat in Italian culture? Well, I was growing up, it, the diet culture, the diet mentality was just starting. So I uh-huh. I don't remember my mother having body image issues until she was until I was a little older, like high school. And uh, my parents were always overweight. Political correct way to say it now is uh, in larger bodies. And they were. And um uh, but, but we ate all the time. Um, mm-hmm. on top of my mom, my mom was Italian. My dad was family was from Syria. So we had a lot of Middle Eastern food. So there was always this, everything revolved around food. The mm-hmm. whole, my whole growing up was, uh, about the rituals of, of food. And, yeah, um, I also grew up in a family that was in the food business. And okay. I swore I wasn't ever going to be in the food business. And here <laughs> I am, and I was thinking, 
oh my gosh, I'm in the food business. Uh, and so it, it, there was food everywhere. And I just saw that my parents were overweight. A lot of, some of my aunts were, and not, they were just, just in larger, little larger bodies. And so. Um, was there like a nagging nature around it? Just. You shouldn't not, be not, more, or, oh. Okay. It was just, there wasn't like a. It was more of the opposite. Eat, eat, eat. Come on, eat. There's still more, but there was always this pressure to eat. And there wasn't a constant talk about bodies until later I would hear my mother and talk about her belly and her this. And that was just um, things that she, she would say about her body, but it wasn't, no one commented on my body. No one said anything. And that, and that and was the beauty up then. Interesting that you had a drive to prevent becoming in a larger body, which by the way, when I first started studying nutrition, those go hand in hand, right? Larger body and health, those are inseparable, right? They're two of the same or one in the same. Um, so when I first wanted to study nutrition, I was thinking, okay, I will learn how to you avoid gaining weight, which is synonymous with, I will learn how to be healthy and I will teach people that. Right. right. And so it's, but it's, but I come from a family who does nag a lot and fixate a lot on weight. And I think it's very like prominent in the Mexican culture. I'm, I don't know, definitely, you know, the more I studied it, study it, the more I realize it's definitely in my family. But um, it is surprising to me that you were motivated to study it when it wasn't too much of a threat, maybe until later on as you got well, older. And I, than it- and I always look back and think of um, reviving, reviving Ophelia and Mary Pfeiffer. That She wrote that back in, I guess, the 80s, late 80s, 90s, maybe early 90s. And she talked about how much the advent of TV brought to people's bodies. Um, Mm. We did not have a color TV in our house till I was in elementary school. We only, yeah, we only had three stations to watch on TV. And, and in, Mary Pfeiffer talks about um, how when Leave it to Beaver and uh, Fathers Knows Best, those old TV shows came in. That was some of the first time women saw other people's, the way other people look, because they only knew people mm-hmm. in, their, in their neighborhood. They just knew people next door to them. So if they all looked alike, no one was really comparing bodies. And now with social media, that's on steroids. Right. Mm. And so I was more that first generation, that the the generation that grew up hearing more about that. And I I didn't grow Uh up in an affluent neighborhood. It was just a very, you know, middle, middle income neighborhood. So nobody really was so out there with bodies and fashion, but as adolescents, I started picking it up and I started seeing what 
I thought we should look people with women should look like, mm-hmm. you know, a healthy and, woman should look like this. Right. And gosh, granted back then women's sizes were what could be considered not normal now because the bodies have just gotten thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, so, so that was my own thing. And I think that was just driven from, from my adolescence. And, um, so what, what happened though, when I was in school and learning all this and then started going on my, you know, just being, being myself and being in my life, I realized that my body wasn't made to be large, uh, that I had to really, really overeat mm-hmm. to offset my balance. Mm. And, and so that made me look at, oh, this is what happens. Cause I moved away from my family's, uh, neighborhood and state when I was young. And so when I went back I, and more being a dietitian, I was like, oh, wow, everybody just sits and eats till they're stuffed. And mm-hmm. so, so full that they can't move. And that's when it finally started dawning on me that, yeah, it's health. Um, but it's also listening to your body. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, more of my, my introduction, my background into nutrition. Plus when I was in school, they didn't teach about eating disorders. That was not taught no. about in school. Hardly even even when I was in school and I graduated from UT Austin um, in 2015. And I think we covered maybe one day worth of a lecture of eating disorders. Yeah. So, but what I did notice, which I'm grateful for my education for this, is our education was very, um, you know, like, okay, we'll teach people about this meal plan and you have to get this recommended daily intake. So you have to get this much vitamin E, vitamin A, carbs, fat, protein, right? So it's Mm -hmm. so like numbers. There's so many numbers involved in just like our nutrition education that I was like, if I don't even want to eat that way for myself, why would I want to teach someone to eat that way? Number one, but also, yeah, it was, it was very weight centric, right? So my whole undergrad education, so much of it was how to get people to lose weight and get on this weight loss intervention. And I don't know. It's, it just is interesting how there is a shift mm-hmm. and it didn't happen while I was in school. And I would assume it definitely wasn't even spoken of when you were in school. Yeah, it was, No, it wasn't. And it's funny that you say that. Cause I remember, you know, being, I worked in the hospital my first couple of years and it was this, the lab coat and you might, you had to have a calculator because you had to figure out all the numbers and figure out how to get the protein, the carbs, everything right. And it was just like, like you said, a whole numbers game that we were constantly looking at and not really thinking about how people felt, you know, or how, how that way of eating even made them feel. 
And so the way from that. How lifeless it is. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, okay, here's this handout, do this. It it, to me was just not, it was not enjoyable. It was very, very hard. It's not very humanly. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just not natural to eat that way. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that we were educated to to look at nutrition that way, huh? Mm-hmm. And until, I think that's yeah, scientific approach. Until what? Yeah. Until what? Oh, but I think about how much nutrition changed, right? Yeah. So just all this. And when I was in school, you could not eat too many carbs. But you had you had to really watch your fat because the fat was going to get you fat. The carbs you could just it was a you know fruitless cycle. The thermogenetics of carbohydrates you're going to burn them. And I was like, now we would like oh, that. So they were oh, like God. they were like promoting promoting high carb mm-hmm, and low fat. Uh-huh. And you know it was all don't eat butter, eat margarine. It was like everything that I probably learned in school. I would not recommend now but that's how much science has evolved mm-hmm. over over the years and mm-hmm. so 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 that to me was super interesting just to to watch okay wait it's going to change tomorrow so even now when people are like you shouldn't eat this you shouldn't do that I was like yeah that's that's the new fad like it took me a while to get on the coconut oil bang went bandwagon because when it was like only coconut yeah. oil, you know, and so things change, and then you find out it's all moderation. It's like what works yeah. the best to make the yeah. food taste the best, and not worry about every little bit of. What, okay, wait. Know, I just want to emphasize what you just said. Okay, so we're following the nutrition research, right? And then everyone's running around like a headless chicken from one extreme to the next, trying to chase what's healthiest. But what you just said, there's a there's a lot of research to show this. And I forget what I was reading yesterday. I think it was Julia. Who's Julia the cook, the chef? Child? Is that what her name yeah. is? Julia Child. Who, yeah, she, she's yeah. She had this like organization that helps people eat healthy, but just through learning how to cook healthy or just look at learning how to cook delicious food. But anyways, to emphasize what you just said, you said it's all moderation. Yeah. Moderation. And it's like, well, what makes sense and what tastes good? Yeah. Moderation and enjoyment. Because if you're not enjoying your food, then it's it's just not okay i mean what's life going to be like and and that's what i would never ever give up is my upbringing of how much food was enjoyed and and just it was just part of our being and i'm mm-hmm. i hope that i instill that in my family too it's like yeah this this is the act of getting together and mm-hmm. Um, sure. It's interesting because my family has a ranch in Mexico and we have like one of everyone's favorite dishes is this thing called esponjadas, which is fried corn tortillas until they like bubble. Um, and then 
you take these little corn tortillas and you put some black beans on it and sprinkle some cheese on it. And maybe a serving is two and you've got like a side of eggs, but there is so much guilt around enjoying these. Like I, I've even had family members be like, why do we have to be so like, why can't we just go out and enjoy the ranch and enjoy nature? Why do we have to make it about the food? And it's like, it's okay to enjoy esponjadas. Like, you know, so it, it's like, and it's like, a cultural food and it's a whole food, you know, you're right. having like beans and corn and cheese and eggs. Well, I but, think of how every ritual that we have going to the ranch, Thanksgiving, Christmas is food is always part of it. And I know so, there's so much we, guilt and shame over enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't think we should be enjoying it. When we don't, we miss out on the ritual. It just throws yeah. that ritual away. So let's hold on to the ritual and, and say, well, yeah, this is the food from the ritual and I'm going to eat it. And till I'm satisfied and I know yeah, I can have but, another time. That. Okay. That sounds so simple, right? So let me picture my family member who is on a weight loss journey, who's getting very frustrated about their weight, um, trying to convince him that he can have the esponjada and just eat until he's satisfied. That's a journey, right? That's not just like, oh, okay, I'm done feeling guilty about food. I can enjoy these fatty foods or these delicious foods. I it's Isn't like such a, it's a paradigm I, shift. Right. It's a paradigm shift because they what they say is I can't do that because I won't stop. I yes. keep eating. And yes, if you I will let myself Yeah. Like, yes, you will keep eating if it's off limits and if you think it's bad. But if you think it's something you get to eat and enjoy, you'll know that I don't have to eat all of this because this is this is what makes me enjoy it, feel it, taste it. Um, I don't know. You're <laughs> tell me what you're thinking. Totally. No, totally. Um, I mean, intuitive eating in the book, they say guilt is the number one driver for overeating. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you let go of that guilt? I mean, that's like a lifetime of beliefs and messages that we've been receiving about being good or bad, depending on how we eat. Right. And that's why you are so important because you're a dietitian and a therapist. Right. To help with even just the dietitian hat, even if you're just wearing the dietitian hat, you're literally eating whole grains and legumes and protein, carbs, and fat by eating that food that brings people so much pleasure. Mm Mm-hmm. And people are like, I shouldn't be liking this. I shouldn't, I, I wish we didn't real, I wish we didn't enjoy this because it's bad. Yeah. And why not? And, yeah. you know, it just, it makes it so, yeah, it's just really, it, the whole thing about guilt. And when I think about clients, it's like, where's that guilt take you? Guilt almost always leads to overeating and binging restriction 
always leads to it. So it's the, how do we get rid of the guilt so we can just enjoy it and feel satisfied? And that's, that's an issue. That's um, a big thing. And then the other thing I think about is what is the guilt about? Like, is it really about the food or is there feeling guilty about something else that's happening in their life? Or if we look at, is it shame? What could be? Okay. So if it's shame, if it's shame, because I think about this in my own life, it's like I, and I talked about this in the first episode called food guilt. I set out to do something, right? So say I want to follow a diet plan and that's my goal. And maybe the shame comes from why can't I just stick to something? Why can't I just set out to do what I, or why can't I just follow through with what I set out to do? Why did I have to deviate, right? So then in that case, it's not about the food or the esponjadas. It's about the fact that my intention was to eat just the eggs, but yet I found myself being too weak to do that, right? Or do you think that that... Shame shame is I'm bad. I'm doing something. Like guilt is I did something that wasn't right, but shame is I'm bad. So there's something bad about me that I can't follow through. Yeah. That, That you're weak. And then when that shame gets in there, that makes it so much more difficult to, to separate. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just really, um, yeah, it's, it's too hard to tease apart. It's so you, hard to tease apart. And then add in perfectionism on top of it and you get the guilt, the shame, the perfectionism is just like, the perfect storm to cause anybody to have tons of food guilt. Yeah. So have you seen the movie Chocolate? Chocolate? Yes. Years ago. And I need, I would like to watch it again. I recommend it to so many of my clients, especially people with food restriction and feeling like foods are good and bad and trying to, keep certain foods away. The priest in the movie, he's on a strict diet, right? The whole movie, he's anti-chocolate. He's like, get this chocolate store out of my little town. It's making people happy, but like that's tainting, you know, the peace in this town. He thinks it's like sinful, right? And then he is also very hard on himself with his own diet. Like I remember there's a scene where he's got like a piece of bread at his desk and he moves it behind the picture frame so that he won't have to look at the bread. But then at the end of the movie, he ends up caving where he loses all of his willpower because a traumatic event happens, which could be synonymous with COVID happening or could be synonymous with like anyone has. Yeah, anyone who goes through a traumatic event, there goes all your willpower, right? Or like there goes all that resistance that you were able to obtain or hold up for a while. You're like, all bets are off. So what he does 
I think he goes through a traumatic event and then he breaks into the chocolate store <laughs> and eats everything until he like passes out basically drunk from chocolate, like past the point of pleasure, mm-hmm. way past the point of pleasure, right? To the point of getting drunk. So it's like, I don't, it, yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But whereas I, the lady who worked, the lady who worked the chocolate store, she was having like daily doses of chocolate, mm-hmm. but she never ate past the point of comfort. And from what I remember, she had a very rich and sensuous life. Like it was just like this neat life from what I remember. And I haven't watched it in 20 some years. So um she definitely does. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's just like, she goes with the wind. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. doesn't, yeah, she doesn't really follow any, like, anyone else's rules but the wind, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Isn't that fun? Isn't that just so freeing? to, to be able to, to do that. I, you know, are you an advocate of that? Of just being able to kind of step to the beat of your own drum? Yes. I know that that sounds like a trick question. No. Yes. um, I'm curious. I think there's a difference between stepping out to the beat of your own drum and being impulsive. So I love that. Sometimes people think, I think they're synonymous and they're not. Yeah. Ooh, I want to hear more about that. Well, you know what? I'm just thinking of that now, but, um, or, you know, you could also be saying like, there's a difference between honoring what's, what you want and rebelling too. Right. And yes. And I think when you, if you're going to the beat of your own drum and you're also taking into, uh, taking into respect of how does it make me feel? What does my body feel like? What is, what's happening? Then what's bad with, what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Like um, to be adventuresome, and I, I, I'm, I love to be adventuresome. And then there's certain things that I won't try that other people will try because I can't. That I don't. I'm not adventuresome in that way. Which is now I'm like, okay, I got to try some of these things that are scary for me. Yeah. um, So anyway, but yes, go to the beat of your own drum. So I kind of, this is for my own personal joy. Like, I don't know if our listeners are going to care, but I kind of want to spend a little time on this because I am a little bit rebellious in a way, or like I kind of do my own thing and Um, so, so this topic really interests me. So 
let, let me let me come up with a specific client example. So this client um was pretty traumatized with bread. Like her mom told her that she was allergic to bread and allergic to chocolate and bananas because she wanted to protect her daughter from getting fat. And so she told her she was allergic to all these foods. Um, then the client eventually got to this unhealthy relationship with bread where she was going into her room and sneaking and eating loaves of bread. Um, and so anyways, now she's an adult decades later, if she were to just continue eating like loaves of bread in one, she doesn't at all. Like we've done a lot of work on mindful eating, intuitive eating, like all these things. She's come such a long way, but if, if she hasn't done this work and if she were to just keep eating all this bread, because that's her kind of owning her autonomy against her upbringing. Right. So that's kind of her stepping to the beat of her own drum, but it's not, it's more rebellious. So differentiate what it would look like of the two, like differentiate the two maybe with her as the example so we can get specific. So, so her eating loaves of bread in the closet or hiding and doing that is, is a total, total rebellion. Okay. And unfortunately, I'm going to say she wasn't taught to go to on the beat of her own drum. Right. I think Mm -hmm. if, so what that Ah. would look like would be, um, I like bread. I'm going to eat bread and nobody's going to tell me not to. Yet I'm going to be able to eat bread for what, how it makes me feel, not because mm-hmm. I'm going to get caught and somebody's going to take it away from me or because mm-hmm. I'm going to feel guilty. And so I, I think if we could use, oh, how do I want to say this? I mean, that's, I think a, going to the beat of your own drum needs to be um, somebody who's also honoring Honor, yeah, but and I don't think people with eating disorders can do that right away. Mm-hmm. So I would teach somebody you can be just as rebellious eating one or two pieces of bread as you can be for that loaf. But that fear that somebody's going to take this away from you, or that fear that you're going to have to follow a diet within a couple of days and get rid of it is not going to allow you to eat one or two pieces and enjoy it. Yeah. And so, so it, you don't really have autonomy because you still have that metaphorical parent in your brain. Right. Yes. That you're going to like, so your inner parent is in there telling you, you can't have this. So your inner child is going to rebel. And no one and step walking to the beat of your own drum is not that battle. It's someone in the middle being like, okay, guys, I know what you want as the parent. I know what you want as the child, but what do we all want? Like as Mm -hmm. us, as me, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Like, okay. So you got me thinking about, um, how I look at um, 
when I'm looking at, um, this is more of a union, um, archetypes. Like if we look at the feminine archetype, nothing to do with gender, just the feminine archetype is rooted in nature, nurture. It's where it's a root of our creativity, but it's very chaotic because it, it, a lot of times that feminine part is ruled by emotions and by mm. just what's happening. And at the same time, it's very nurturing. Okay. And you have that masculine archetype and not related to gender that is logical, linear. These are the rules. This is what you need to do. These are the, the way we need to run things. Okay. So when, if I think about looking at it, eating disorder wise, that masculine archetype is so the restrictive. Like these are the rules. I'm sticking with it. Um, there's no, no venturing out. So it's very calm, cool, directed. The and where the feminine is more like I'm gonna do free spirit. I'm gonna be what I want to be, you know. But also nurturing. So that could be more that binge eater, or the yeah, you know, just the one that goes off the deep end. We need that negotiator. That, that is between the masculine and feminine and saying, wow. right now I want to eat bread. And the, the, the feminine's like, I want bread. I just want bread. And the masculine's saying, nope, nope, you can't have bread. Where that negotiator comes in and says, it's okay. Why don't you make a sandwich with the best bread you like? Let's just have it. So it's it's getting those two psyches together. Yeah. And helping them listen to it. So the, and an example I give that's not food related is that the feminine's going, I want to paint. Well, the masculine's going to say, but you don't have the supplies. You don't need this. So the negotiator comes in and says, okay, we need to go to the paint. So the art store, we need to buy canvases. We need to buy paint. So we get to paint. So, so the same with food, we have to oh have my gosh. a negotiator between the two psyches. I have chills. <laughs> I guess I'm ruled by my feminine side. That's interesting. You know what? It's funny because, and this is all Anita Johnston's work. She wrote Eating in the Light of the Moon and just wonderful. And I feel really fortunate that I got to train with Anita, um, I thought I was all feminine. And if you, if you talk to people that know me, they're like, oh my God, Michelle, she, she'll be dancing in the streets. She'll be doing all this stuff. And, and, and sometimes I do, I go way off. And what I realized just doing the work and, and listening to my masculine side and listening to my feminine side, I was rebelling from the critic that was in my masculine side that said, this is how you should act. This is how you should dress. This is what you should say. And then I would just go. Oh, like, so she was louder. The feminine side was louder because of the loud masculine side. Right. Mm-hmm. Ah, Michelle, that is so cool. I had never heard of that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Anita Johnston's 
has some really good, good work out there. I think this is a really good segue into how my question is, how important is it that when you're seeing a dietitian, say I don't have an eating disorder, right? And I'm just like, okay, I want to start working on my diet. How important is it to also look at the therapy side of things and your mental health? Hmm. You know, I think as a dietitian first, we would, why do you want to improve your diet? What exactly. do you, you want to do? What are you, how are you eating? And, you know, there's some people that just don't know. And we can train people. Yeah. Yet the first sign of either perfectionistic eating or the sign of I can't come back, I, I didn't do it right, is when we need you to be, see a therapist. There's some underlying issues to your food. And I think every dietitian needs to do a screening of how, how often do you, like, I, this is how many diets have you been in on? What makes you change the diets? Are you, do you follow the diets ex, just so true to form and then you go off and then you go back on another? Those are people that probably need therapy. Because they are so... Who would not... Who who do you feel like would not benefit from therapy when they are wanting to change their eating habits? Okay. First of all, I think everybody needs to have therapy. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there's so many people who have a stigma... Yeah, are stigmatized therapy. And like, no. Uh, yeah, I think everybody should therapy. But I think... Uh, it's anybody who has rigid rules and aren't just able to take your information that's just flexible. Like, okay, what about, like, if somebody wants to change their diet, okay, what about eating more often? What about adding some fruit in here? If they can't handle that or if they're saying other things, I think I would send a therapy. Mm-hmm. But this is coming from me, who is a therapist too, and a dietitian. Okay, so what if, what if it's like, um, also, by the way, one thing that I learned the other day that I loved was the thing that we resist the most is probably the thing that we need to do the most. And I have seen that in hospitalized patients who have a stigma against psychotherapy right so maybe I'll talk to a spouse or someone and I'm like hey this person might benefit from psychotherapy and the spouse is like she or he will see a dietitian but they will not see a therapist and I'm like that's ironic because I said that for a reason you know like you know and so how hard therapists work to get their patients to see dietitians I think it's both ways Oh, but I do think the thing that you resist the most, Mm -hmm. and of course there's a reason you might resist it. Like, I can't tell you how many clients I've had come to me shocked that I wasn't measuring their fat mass and asking them to lower their BMI and asking them to cut out their favorite foods and stuff like that. They're like, I went back and told all my friends that you didn't even talk to me about weight and that you didn't put me on any diet. Like, and my friend, like, you know, 
fast forward three months and my clients are like, my friends ask me what diet I'm on and I tell them I'm not on one. You know, I just talk to my dietitian once a week mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's anyways, but so there's a valid reason that people do resist something, right? It's, but it it was a cool, because I have a lot of resistance in my own life in making certain big decisions. And it, it was cool to see that that was a sign, like, whatever I'm resisting most, that's a sign. I just need to do it. Do it. I always think too, what you resist persists. So Mm -hmm. I, you're going to, it's going to keep showing up. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, that's like, I really need to feed into my creative side and it is so hard for me to do that doing any kind of art and I know that's just a scary part of what I do whatever about me what I'm you know it's it, that inner critic is just so loud interesting well next time we get together it'll be a paint with the twist <laughs> okay yes <laughs> well, that, um, Christmas presents are going to be more creative Christmas presents for everybody oh, that'll be That'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be good. So, okay. This, I hope this was good. I hope. Yeah. We went into a lot of, um, we branched off a lot, huh? But that's kind of how it is talking with me. Well, that's, and that's with talking with me too. So. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we covered some good foundational stuff just about like, the segues of being interested in, you know, controlling our body sizes and then that taking an interest in nutrition and then how that ties into something so much bigger than food and exercise. Um, and we gave people a little bit of our own examples and some client examples. So Michelle, if anybody wanted to find you, um, how could they get in touch with you? How could they learn more about you? Um, my website is mcrosscounseling.com. And I'll put that in the show notes. And then what else do you have going on? I know you started a new. I'm also, right. I'm also working through Eating Recovery Center with a program I started three years ago was the an intensive outpatient program for U- University of Texas students. And it's been, it's been wonderful to see how that's progressed over the three years. And so. Amazing. You can find me through Eating Recovery Center also. Amazing. And then you have an, a consultants yes. group, correct? I have a consulting group called um, Eating Disorder Consultants. And it's mainly, our goal was to help non-eating disorder therapists and dietitians retain their clients and come for help on how to treat them, how to know when they may need a higher level of care, how to know how to talk with patients. And I think especially dietitians, I mean, both therapists and dietitians, because we all have our own food thoughts and rules and body thoughts and they all come up in in 
working with individuals. And it's so this is a place where people can come in and just ask their questions and ask how they can better uh, work with clients. And that our website there is eatingdisorderconsultants.com. I love that. Yeah. It'd be cool if most like group dietetic private practices were to have like a membership or something so that all these little dietitians who are working in group practice, of course, they're going to be getting eating disorder clients and it'd be super helpful for them to be able to come to that, come to those sessions. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michelle. This is good. Thank you. So good meeting, talking with you. It's fun. Lost. All right. So we'll, um, we'll have Michelle back on for another episode in the future, but goodbye for now.